When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Willkommen, bienvenue, welcome. No, this is not cabaret, it's Think About It, a podcast about the power of ideas and how language can change the world, with Uli Baer. Does social justice and moral progress depend on free speech? Today I will be speaking with Professor Akhil Bilgrami of Columbia University. He's a philosopher and the author of many books, was the chair of the philosophy department at Columbia and the director of its Humanities Institute, and has two different interests, really, philosophy of mind and language and political philosophy and moral psychology. Professor Bilgrami will join me to talk about the value of free speech in making society better. I want to welcome my guest today, Professor Akhil Bilgrami, who is the Sydney Morning Morgan Besser Chair of Philosophy at Columbia. Thank you, Akhil, for joining the podcast today. I wanted to ask you a couple things about the free speech controversies on campus. And in particular, I'm interested in two aspects. I'm interested in your effort to explain the philosophical underpinnings of this pervasive idea of the marketplace of ideas or the kind of trade in ideas. And then to move to another aspect of these controversies, which is the generational difference between the perceptions of speech. If we could start maybe by sort of opening up this conversation, that there's a, an idea that the university should be a marketplace of ideas, that all ideas should be allowed, that the whole point is to pursue the truth by engaging with any and all available thoughts and ideas, and that this is rooted in John Stuart Mill and then Joseph Holmes' idea of a free marketplace. Right. Well, you know, the ideal of free speech has been sort of located in that metaphor of the marketplace of ideas, and and that does go back to a f celebrated, famous argument of Mill's, And I think that argument is actually just a grotesque fallacy. And I myself don't think that metaphor of the marketplace of ideas really is the source of the best justification for free speech, whether on campus or, or in, in the mundiality of the world at large. But I do think that, and we can talk about the, the metaphor But on campuses today, I think it is a really interesting phenomenon. And I think it's really sort of a brand new phenomenon in the last five years or so, where questions of diversity and difference, <coughs> uh, cultural difference and racial difference and gender difference, have generated a new questioning of the basic value of free speech. 
And that's an important thing to get straight on because I think there is something quite novel that's emerging on campuses. I don't think it's the same thing that it's the same issue of free speech, for instance, that Galileo <laughs> encountered in Renaissance Europe. Here's why I think it's a, a new phenomenon. You see, I, I think things trace back to the very creative turmoil of the 1960s. I think one has to situate current controversies on campus. By current, I really mean only the last few years, three, four, five years, where there's real hostility that's emerged over the question of free speech. And I think cool heads have gone missing on both sides. On uh, both sides, right? There's yeah. a lot of acrimony and a lot there's of... A lot of acrimony. There seems to be a, a real incommensurate way that people right. think either... And there's a way of setting it up. Either you're a free speech absolutist or you're right. absolutely against That's free speech. Right. That's right. But I think one needs to come to some grips with the pedigree of current controversy. And and that really goes back to the 1960s when the youth were, you know, really protesting initially the misadventures of this country's government in Southeast Asia. And there was the whole draft of young people in conscription and and that protest really derived from or associated with a left politics that wasn't just about the Vietnam War, but really was about a critique of capitalism and so on. And imperialism, you know, capitalism's... So you're linking this protest of the war to a larger critique of the kind of... Right. So I'm saying it goes... The issues go back to that. But what's interesting about that period is that questions of, of say, racial diversity and difference emerged at the same time right. as this left critique of American government policy in Southeast Asia as deriving from a critique of capitalism and imperialism. Now, when racial politics emerged in tandem with a left politics of that kind, it was a racial politics that was basically arguing for the political rights, civil rights, right. of, of a whole race, of African Americans, of blacks. So, so it's a fight for... Equality, for equality, and it's a larger fight for a kind of justice right. in a system that isn't set up to probably allow for this kind of equality. So you have this protest against the war as a critique of the American setup of society at large. Right, and the racial issues were in tandem. They came along with a left critique of society and economics and political economy and so on. And so, so it was very much a political set of claims on the question of race, civil rights. And one of the most remarkable pieces of legislation in American history emerged out of those struggles. So uh, the Civil Rights Act of 1965, right, which right. is for the first time establishes equality in all sorts of institutional settings, workplaces, accommodation, exactly. transportation, etc. So we have a moment when there's equality established right. socially. Yes. Right. Now, what's interesting is that when racial politics divorced from a left critique of capital, of imperialism, and so on. In the decades that followed, uh, basically from the 80s on, 
it was no longer just a, a political struggle for economic and civil rights, but it became really the focus changed to culture and identity, right? And that was a very marked shift because it wasn't tied. Racial politics was no longer tied to a critique of capital, but it, it was just a cultural critique. And so the Can we stay with this for a moment? So let's say in the 60s we have a kind of demand for racial justice, for political and legal equality. Mm. The same for gender for mm, political and exactly. legal equality. So you have in the kind 70s, of equality. Call, yeah. So this is the late 60s, early 70s. And then this becomes, there's also a kind of parallel movement of kind of um, a kind of politics of pride and a politics of identity of of, to affirm and claim right. one's space in society, exactly. not just legally and politically, but also right. culturally and visibly. Exactly. So when racial politics and gender politics, feminist politics, got divorced from critique of capital and became a cultural theme instead, you know, then it emerged as a real valorization of the very idea of identity, racial identity, gender identity, and so on. And so a quite different kind of politics emerged. It was no longer just a political but a cultural set of themes, and that's when identity politics emerged. The very idea of difference became a cultural object of study. Do you have a sense of why did this kind of cleavage happen, or this kind of separation of a political demand for critique of capitalism and becomes a politics of representation and becomes sort of shifting into what you're saying is identity politics? Well, I think that there was a receding of left politics. And this, I'm talking about these developments, these culturalist developments in the study of race and, yes. and gender really emerged only in the 80s onwards, right? Before that, it was really working side by side with left politics, and it was really a, a purely political and economic struggle for race on the question of race. Now, in the 80s, I think, there were an enormous number of changes in the international political economy. So, for instance, the Bretton Woods institutions were dismantled or remantled, really. And as a result, the very nature of capital changed. The industrial capital really gave way to the domination of finance capital. And there was this tremendous mobility of capital generated by these changes. Like, in like what we call kind of globalization, or right, your exactly. colleague, so Gayatri Spivak, said the right. only thing that was globalized is right. so money and data. <laughs> so money is globalized in, a, in right. a new way at this moment. Yeah, it's finance, really, yeah. and that dominated capital from the 80s on, thanks to these changes that I mentioned. And as a result, I think, left politics just was beaten down. So union, trade unions... And in this country, exactly. The unions, so in some ways... Exactly. Tra the unions are unions. dismantled in a way, system, sort of slowly or systematically, and so what happens right. is a shift away from industrial money to finance, and the unions are disappearing as a, as a well, major for a very simple force. reason. For a very simple reason, that if you have labor troubles in a country and you have political parties with manifestos and platforms, uh, pro-labor and pro-working people platforms that the capital just flies out of the country okay. when there are other countries to go to and there are other countries that are suddenly available <coughs> that you can move industrial money and, and production into right well if it's if it's mostly financial capital it moves at the press of a button right. Right. so so as a result because of the anxieties of capital flight these societies and in 
pretty much all over the globe, right, uh, are forced to to cut down on the progressive platforms, and trade unions are beaten down by that. Labor gets casualized, impermanent, and it loses its bargaining power. So, but anyway, as a result of this, left politics just recedes, and so the left becomes associated with identity politics. And so can you culture. say a little bit about what you mean by that? Because that word has become such a it, kind of it, term of disagreement as it, right. itself. So, so it's basically a culturalist shift. So identity is no more a racist struggle to achieve economic equality, but it is to insist that there is a, a cultural inferiorization uh, of a whole races of a whole gender, and all of that is true. And I think one of the most interesting things that emerged in on campuses is how the centrality of class as a concept was dethroned. So the left has always emphasized class identity over other identities. Right. And they've, in fact, thought all other identities, whether race or gender, just parochialized politics. And uh, the chief identity should be class identity. That's always been the left's, traditional left's view of things. And in many ways, that's wrong, because, after all, there are many other sources of disrespect than material inequalities. Race, caste in the country I come from, that's India, and, and gender and so on are all locations by which uh, one half of a population in the case of gender has contempt for, a, or if not contempt, it, there's just a whole set of patriarchal institutions. Right. And formal and informal inequality. Economic inequality, political inequality, cultural inequality. Right. So, so, so there's sources of disrespect, contempt, and so on, which are not just material. Right. They shift and from an economic to a cultural or a political Well, th they always existed, right? They always existed, Material inequalities are not the only source of of disrespect. Class disrespect is not the only disrespect. Right. There, there's racial disrespect, caste disrespect, and they were always that was always there. It's just that the left focused on one kind of identity, which and is if class. I can add one thing to the universities. What's interesting in American universities, if you reach back sort of thirty more years, in the late forties and fifties, here through the GI Bill a huge influx of really people from different classes into the universities. There, there's a kind of increase of people who didn't go to universities, a big kind of massive program, essentially, affirmative action for basically people from lower classes to attend higher education. And then in the 60s, you have women, and especially African-American or minority students, entering the universities. You have this big shift. So in some ways, what you're saying, they're describing the left's detachment from class issues and attachment to cultural issues yeah. is also that the universities did make a huge leap forward to bring more people into the universities. It's no longer such an elite institution by the 60s. And then they're adding women and minorities in large numbers. Of course, there were a few, but they're really in large numbers. So then we're in the 80s, and you're now having sort of the left politics saying identity is rooted maybe in cultural identity, ethnic identity, gender identity, and that is a political argument to be made mm -hmm. at the expense of previously the more kind of material inequality argument. Right, because the left just was beaten down by the changes in political economy all over the globe. And, see, my sense here is that the left 
was wrong not to recognize these other forms of disrespect that come not from material inequalities but from race, gender, and caste, and so on. But there is, however, something that is right about, that is correct about what the left's view was, that despite being wrong in this respect, I think the left was right in the following sense. Ask yourself this question. Suppose we take the good things, the ameliorations, on the front of race and gender that have emerged since the 1980s. The real gains have been made on racial and gender equality. Now ask yourself the question, would these gains on race and gender have been allowed if they really threatened capital? If they really threatened the complete stronghold influence of corporations in this society? Would these changes in, you know, these improvements these, these ameliorations of, on the race and gender front have been allowed if they really undermine capital and the, the influence of corporations. So your question is whether uh, the, left, I don't think they would have the been left allowed itself to be attached to questions that are not fundamentally calling into question the kind of the capitalist order. Right. And um, so it's only because... Nonetheless, they they're real advances. As you say, yeah. they're real. They're real steps exactly. forward. And so they actually do benefit people materially exactly. and culturally. They and do benefit them. They, they give them um, both cultural pride and their ameliorations. But, but I do think the left had this much right. I mean, they, they were wrong to, to not recognize other forms of disrespect, but they had this much right that these other things would not have been allowed. These improvements would not have been allowed if they undermined capital. And that's just a kind of indirect proof that class is more fundamental. Leaves open probably the question of the astonishing success of the civil rights movement in this country that it was actually achieved that actually because it wouldn't have really been allowed if they used a purely yeah, sort of is that's it protecting what I, the I think so the answer is it would never have been allowed. So the the radical right. the radicality of that is actually that something happened that really wouldn't have been allowed if the that's capitalist right. order just protected that's right. some hope there. The cla- <laughs> the, that makes the class issue more fundamental in yes. a way. Now just to be fair, I think you can pose the converse question too. You can ask the question would improvement on the class front been allowed if it undermined patriarchy, say. As a cultural hegemony, you're saying patriarchy. Right. So would improvements in class inequality, would the creation of greater class equality have been allowed if it undermined patriarchy? You can ask that question. But you see, I don't know how to go about answering that question, partly because there haven't been improvements in class you know, if, so if there's if greater economic inequality. We've seen that actually. Exactly. If, Pickett, if Piketty's it, right, it's actually increased. So, so since it's not happened, it's very hard to answer that question. Right, right. You know, whereas like, there have been improvements on class and on gender and race issues. So what you're opening up is also that the term equality carries at least two meanings. There's pure economic equality. Yeah. And so Piketty, for example, is saying there's larger inequality in a right. purely economic terms. Right. But there may be gains in cultural or political or right. legal equality. Right. And I think if we go back to you, sort of where we are right now in the 80s, what's happening in the university. So the left gives up on a kind of class-based kind of leftist politics, let's say for the sake of a different politics that you're saying also makes some advances. But something shifts here into the area right. that you're calling identity politics. In the 80s and ni- 90s, it really reached its peak in the 90s, identity politics really triumphed on campuses. 
I mean, it just it really caught fire on campuses. And what is interesting is that it was led by the faculty. It was not the students. See, the students were active in the 60s and early 70s, but they were not active in this transformation on campuses in the 80s and 90s. This kind of, these so-called culture wars, you know, where the old guard said, I can't teach English without having to talk about gender and race right. and so on, right? And these culture wars were really culture wars between faculty members. But also probably two generations of faculty, a yeah. kind of older generation that said, we are destroying the Western canon and Western civilization. Right. And you had smart arguments, Alan Bloom, and you had less smart arguments, people saying this is the end of Western civilization. And other people said, Western civilization has been set up to exclude other perspectives. It right. is not inclusive enough, so we're going to challenge that. Right. So I lived through that. I went to college then, and uh -huh. <laughs> you're right. It was a f it was faculty debates. Yeah. So they were and mostly faculty led, sp spilling over into the public with the kind of obscenity debates about Maplethorpe and people like that. The kind uh -huh. of Jesse Helms sort of policing of obscenity, and uh -huh. so there was a cultural component. I think that was even off campus. Yeah. early 90s debates, the, yeah. the cultural wars. Right. It was outside campuses too, but it did really have a major transformation. And some of it had very good results, by the way. I mean, you know, as a result of feminism of this kind on campuses, I think a lot of sexism on campus was forced out. The faculty just behaved very differently after feminism on campuses, both towards students and towards each other. And so there were a lot of good things that came out of it. And I think that the people today who are really attacking the politics of difference and diversity are just, they have no sensitivity to how people feel as a result of centuries of oppression, whether it's women or, or blacks. And there's something really obtuse about a lot of people who are just completely unsympathetic to what has been actually achieved, good things that have been achieved through the triumph of identity politics on campuses. If we stay there for a little bit, I think it's interesting. I share the sentiment that there's a kind of unwillingness to listen to this next generation. And it's interesting, these generational conflicts seem to be repeated, but they're different. Well, but that's the thing, you see. Though faculty started this, the current controversies are really led by the students. Right. And the faculty, by and large, fall on the anti-students side. I mean, there's some faculty, of course. I mean, since they started it in the 80s and 90s, there's some who, who still continue with it. But I think, by and large, it is, you're quite right to point out that it's a generational dispute. And could, could you say a little bit about what the two sides of this dispute are? Because we need some clarity right. on those terms of diversity and difference versus this free speech doctrine, which is, I think, right. a little bit doctrinaire, since it is so absolute. Right. So the current controversies, the faculty... Are, are no longer on the side of identity, by and large. I mean, you know, there are exceptions. And the students are, by and large, insisting that because of centuries of oppression of African Americans and women, certain things simply have to be changed on campuses. And so they've they are expressing sensitivities to what goes unacknowledged. One of the most interesting claims is that 
any kind of speech that is hostile, which comes under the rubric of what is called hate speech, must be stigmatized and, and, and sanctioned. There must be sanctions against it. And in fact, the sensitivities are so acute that even civil speech, or seemingly civil speech, has a, a sort of hidden underbelly of hostility, which are known as microaggressions. That's a new term to, to describe the hostilities that may even lie below the surface of seemingly civil speech. So it's not just hate right. speech, but, but microaggressions at the submerged level. And that these things ought to be acknowledged and sanctioned. That's one set of demands on, by the young. Second, there's a demand that there is so much legacy of the hostility of race and gender, for instance, that one women and, and minorities generally need a sort of safe space to not feel the, the weight, the oppressive weight of majoritarianism. We can stay for this for a moment. I think this last point, I think students are also saying, let's say we've been here since the 60s, Women were admitted, African-American students were admitted, minority students were admitted. Our parents have gone here. Our parents had to exercise the politics of respectability, do twice as well to achieve half as much, work really hard. They then became professionals, and they sent their children to the same schools, and their children are there. This is the third generation, and they're sitting here in the 2000 teens and saying, and we are still being asked every single day whether we really belong, whether we have a right to be here. And what they have termed microaggressions, I think, is actually, in another way, one could say, is this a form of serial systematic harassment? And we've had too many episodes recently in this country where people are not just asked to leave certain spaces, but police are called when they are getting a coffee or being in a park or being in a dorm room. So I think there's links to a different kind of social movement, which is Black Lives Matter, and saying this country's institutions have really not protected equality. So I think what's hard about this is that students are young and driven by passion and saying all sorts of things, and they're saying we are offended, we're in distress. But I actually think it touches on a question whether the university has truly been committed to assuring the equality of all of its students and faculty. That's right. They're, they're and there something is worth listening right. to, I felt. Sure. sure. I mean, the sensitive, a third demand, apart from the sanctioning of hate and, and speech and microaggressions and the demand for safe spaces, a third very crucial demand is that things that are taught in classrooms, if there's material which is, you know, hurtful or, or alarming to, to say, blacks or, or women, you know, just depictions of lynchings or, or rape and so on, uh, or slave beatings and so on, as literature often depicts, then then students must be warned that this is about to, to happen in a classroom. They can have the right to not have it sort of articulated in in these ways and, and they can stay away from class and so on. So So there's this enormous range of sensitivities that identity politics has thrown up among students now. And faculty have retreated. Many faculty, having started this identity politics, have retreated 
And so it has become, roughly speaking, a generational dispute, despite some students being on the other side and some faculty being on. Now, what is interesting to me is, first of all, that there are two sociological points that have to be made here. I'll say something about philosophically, too, but let me observe two sociological points, which are pretty obvious, but still worth registering explicitly. One is, you see, people of my generation, so I'm, I'm in my 60s, I, I was a young, very young student in the late 60s, we were brought up in the shadow of McCarthyism. Okay. Right? And the shadow of the Cold War. A in the Cold severe, War. Very much in the heart of the Cold War. Severe repression of political speech right. by so, the government. Right. Yeah. So we are attuned by our experiences to place free speech as very central. Because we really do have a sense of, of how oppressive McCarthyism was, how oppressive the Cold War was. You know, how you couldn't be a leftist without being stigmatized and in fact being surveyed and so on and so forth. And so lose your, you lose your job or be actually yeah, exactly. jailed and really punished. Yeah. Right. So the whole Cold War period and the sort of legacy of McCarthyism, which was much subtler uh, even after McCarthyism faded, is something that makes for the older generations, that makes free speech very central for us. Students have not grown up in the shadow of McCarthyism and in the Cold War. For them, it's identity politics which has shaped them. So they don't feel free speech is as central as these sources of disrespect in race and gender. But what is even more important is that they, their social orbit, is almost entirely electronic. Right? And they, they participate in on the internet or in the internet with far greater relish and ease than the older generation does. And it's really the whole social orbit is electronic. It's, it's the internet. And the internet has anonymous interlocutors. So there are exchanges on the internet and they're eavesdropping on exchanges. Young people are eavesdropping on exchanges which are extremely hostile, made by anonymous interlocutors, and they're full of hate speech. They're full of racist. And so they feel if there's so much racist and, and hate speech in their social orbits, electronic social orbits, they, they don't think of free speech as central. They so think of the, it should be censored. So I want to stay with this. This is really important because I think you're absolutely right that the Internet makes it possible to really be confronted with a huge amount of hate speech and idiotic speech. Which is anonymous, so you can't trace the agent. Uh, and I think the, this younger generation and other people are also saying, so this idea from the older generation that free speech has not only protected us politically on the left, but also assured the gradual march of reason and the triumph of the truth and that somehow progress is assured. And they're saying, if this were true, how come I can go on the internet and see so much incredible hate speech about people like me all the time if your idea is right, that free speech just makes us all into better people, that kind of this idea of the increase of a tolerant society, kind of Lee Bollinger's really powerful idea. So I think they're saying, so you're, you're telling me I should believe in free speech because it's really good for society and everybody, except that my group has been targeted and seems to be targeted more and more and more because of these free, free speech protections. So I think they have some doubt that this idea that free speech always benefits minorities right. and liberates everybody right. and brings us toward more equality right. may be an assumption 
which of course can't be proven because we can't do experiments with society and well, prohibit speech. <laughs> they just deny it because they, they see since their social life is really electronic and internet-based, uh, not not face-to-face and not voice-to-voice telephonic, but really on the internet. And the other thing, it's documented. So suddenly everybody can witness these things. So everybody witnesses suddenly what happens to minorities in this country because you watch videos. Every day there's a video of how people are treated. So I think the anonymity and the fact that everybody becomes a witness to this is very powerful that they can point and say, look, this is what really happens when you walk into a room right. or you walk into a building. Right. Well, but the young actually witnesses it more because they are on the Internet, oh, right. though, on Facebook and so on, whereas the older generation is much less on it. So as a result, they, it doesn't have the same compelling right. anxiety for the old because they don't witness it in the same way because they just don't participate. This is all of their social orbit is, is really electronic. So how can this the older generation, people who actually really thought free speech has to be protected because McCarthyism was really a kind of abuse of sort of the government's power, how can you convince people who are challenging this idea and saying, and how can you convince them of the inherent value of free speech as goodness, as political value? Right, in it? So, so that is the crucial question. Now, one of the things that you should notice, see, my view on this, and I've written about this in a, in a recent paper which you might look at, it's in, in uh, you know, Ken Pruitt, I don't know if you know Ken Pruitt. Yes. He's yeah. the head of the Social Science Research Council. He's edited a, a, a special issue of social research, the, the yes. journal Social Research, which is on scholarship at risk or something right. like that. And, and I've got a paper in there in which I argue that what the young are really arguing for, especially in the humanities, is, is to model humanistic inquiry on the model of inquiry in criminal law. Now, you know, this might sound like a philosopher's artifice, but really, I really mean that. I really think this is a brand new development in the last to five years. Here's what I mean. You see, why do I say that students want universities, inquiry, especially in the humanities, to be like inquiry in criminal law? What is inquiry in criminal law? Ask yourself. Well, ask, ask the question, why is it that a juror in a, in a criminal case is not said, is not given the instruction, keep an open mind, but is rather given the instruction, presume innocence on the part of the accused until the threshold of evidence is met beyond reasonable doubt. Presume innocence. You see, when you do inquiry, generally, right. generally speaking, when you do inquiry, the general instruction to the inquirer is keep an open mind. Don't presume anything, right? No, exactly. And in, the, in a forensic right. or legal Don't investigation, presume anything, you have keep to an presume innocence. Yeah. Why is the juror in criminal law told presume innocence on the part? It is because there are ongoing prejudices that the juror has to overcome. So one prejudice is if somebody is accused, there must be something to it. Right. Right. There's this he cliche. must have done something. Yeah. There's the cliche, where there's smoke, there's fire. 
right? So one goes in with a prejudice as a juror, right? So, so you have to counter that prejudice. And so you're told to presume innocence rather than just keep an open mind. Okay, another very serious prejudice is that, except in very few cases, the prosecution has the whole authority of the state. Right. Right. And so the accused is, you know, so the jury is intimidated by the authority of the state. I mean, just think of the Milgram, Milgram experiment, right? Of course, How you, yeah. you really mm-hmm. are yeah. susceptible to right. the power of and authority to intimidate. people consent to authority more right. easily than we thought. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, the, and it's the prosecution, not the defense, which usually has authority. I mean, police brutality cases are an exception, but by and large, it's the, the state and the prosecution which has. So to counter the prejudice of, you know, that, that you might be intimidated by authority, you, you have to favor. So basically, criminal law has a notion of due process, what can be said and what can't be said in court, how evidence is accumulated, how it is articulated, what can be s- struck from what and the witness what's says. What's admissible, yeah, there's what, real what criteria is admissible of and admissible. What, is not, what must be struck from what... If it was illegally obtained, it's not right. admissible. Yeah, yeah. Or, or, or if it just, you know, if a, if a witness says things which are, you know... Well, only some things right. are allowed and so on, right? Preju- prejudicial. So, so to counter prejudice... You, you don't give the instruction, keep it open, you give the instruction. So how has this become a model for students in the And humanities? the students are saying there are centuries of prejudice that exist in society, including on campuses, against gender. And <coughs> we must therefore have a, an analog to due process, what can be said in classrooms and what can't be said. So a, an analog to due process comes from the idea that you must counter prejudices that exist, right? So it really is like criminal law that they're demanding inquiry to be. So where do we take this? Isn't this a good moment to then sort of talk about this if the students have this assumption? Because other assumptions prevail of how a classroom operates and how we reach the truth, right? Which is not the forensic or the legal model. Exactly. So, well, my idea here is that if I'm right that this is what the students are demanding, they, they haven't put it this way, but they're not philosophers. I mean, you know, they don't articulate things in this very explicit way <coughs> conceptually, but I do think they're demanding this implicitly. And if I'm right that this is what they're demanding, that there should be a form of due process of what can and can't be said in classrooms and so on, then I think that there I would want to, to tell them make a distinction and say that even within criminal law there are two models so let it let it be the case that they're right that and i'm right to think of them as like in a general sense i would say let let them say the rules of the game have to be defined in a way that they are fair and equitable let's say and we think they're not right now exactly so they're just saying we're going to change the rules of the game and the rules of the game as we know have been established by somebody they didn't fall from the sky and are natural they are constructed expressive prejudices and we want to counter that and so we want an analog to due process but but i want to now say that even if that is right criminal law offers two different models within it one is the forensic model, right, which is what happens in, you know, in these courtrooms downtown where you go. Or in law and order, those television yeah, dramas, kind of right. Exactly. <laughs> but there's also the cases of transitional justice, as you find, say, in the, 
in South Africa, etc. And the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, right. kind of a different so, kind of... So that's criminal law. You're assessing the crimes of, of apartheid regime. But it is not, it's not forensic because you have to engage with the accused, right? Therefore, they, they, they're brought in, they confess, you, 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 know, you ask them about their motivations. And so, so it's, what happens in forensic law, forensic criminal law, is that the accused sits silently in the dark and you just see him or her as the object of objective investigation, right? Forensic investigation. In so it's detached. It's detached. Exactly. And in transitional cases, the queue speaks up. So there's, there's an, an engagement. engagement. So right. your differentiation is to say the one is a detachment and that's problematic. Right. The other one is a kind the of engaged engagement. engagement. And, and I think that universities must adopt the second, even if it's a, a criminal law model, if the obviously relevant criminal law model is the case of the transitional justice of the kind you had in South Africa. And there, <coughs> if it's an engagement model of criminal law inquiry, then you have to listen, you know, uh, all, you have to, to listen to all sides. sides. To all sides yeah. And engagement requires listening to all sides. So, so even if the students are right to counter prejudice through this due process idea of inquiry in the humanities and so on, if it takes the engagement transitional model rather than the forensic model of criminal law, then you don't undermine free speech. And, but you've written and pointed out that disengagement is reciprocal and has to happen on both sides. On both sides. And there cannot be a kind of blunt right. argument that free speech is absolute, we are yeah. the second order argument and you right. should just listen to us, but rather both the side of free speech has to also explain what is the value yeah. of this rather than just assuming right. this is self-evident. And I think there's part of the engagement that's not happening on because it's not mutual or on both happening on yeah. both sides. Exactly. So so I think I think the students don't get to say free speech comes second if there's engagement, but on the other both sides have to engage. But th that now the notion of engagement is a very different argument for free speech than the marketplace of ideas stuff. Interesting. Very different. It's not just a free-for-all. Yeah, it's it, not just, it's not, yeah, I mean, the marketplace of ideas thing is is unconvincing for reasons that I've written right, about. Right, yes, um, no. I think really importantly that you've actually pointed out that it is kind of misleading to assume. Yeah. It's just sort of, it's based on the pure idea of rationality. Right. To just finish kind of on the, the extreme examples on campus are usually not necessarily in a classroom where someone's introducing a text, but they're really about kind of what are either called controversial speakers or really firebrands who are only there to provoke. And I think there's a gradation. There are some people who are there to provoke and some people there to just actually really instigate rage and strong yeah. feelings. And there I think, so what do students have to do to be told you have to listen to this because of course there are well, many rules of the game we right. don't accept racial epithets we don't accept slurs in classrooms we don't allow right. for lots of speech no but you see i <coughs> see i think there's a confusion when people think but so so if i'm right that the argument for free speech is not the marketplace metaphor but the notion of engagement one shouldn't insist that engagement means dialogue you see Dialogue is just one kind of engagement. Now, peop I don't think you can engage with somebody who's coming and shouting and 
has no desire to hear you. Or who's saying people like you should not exist in right. the university right. or on the planet. Yeah. So, so they, <laughs> they don't want to engage. They just come there to abuse and shout, right? And, and maybe there are speakers who, who want to do that. But the point is, you can't have a dialogue with somebody who does that. In fact, in fact, my view is you can't have a dialogue with anybody who's not your equal. Equal meaning, meaning willing to engage on in the terms of reason debate or... No, I, I just mean you can't have a dialogue with the master. If you're an oppressed person, right, a slave can't have meaning a... Meaning in a political sense, yeah. yeah not you, the master of a college. <laughs> no, no, no. No, no, I mean, j just, you know, just the privileged. Right. Right. Or the, okay. So, I mean, a slave owner can't have a... Uh, a slave can't have a dialogue with the slave owner. So the principle so, of equality, everybody's ideas matters equally in this context. Well, so, so dialogue is not possible when there is real power relations. But not all engagement is dialogue. You see, suppose somebody just comes and rants, right? You, you don't have to have a dialogue with the person, but if the person is saying things, right, let them circulate, let, let what they say circulate, and speak to the ideas that are circulating in them, right? So, so engagement is a broader notion than dialogue. Maybe you can't have a dialogue with, with such a person, but if the person is nevertheless allowed to speak, you can... <coughs> you can just take those ideas and make them the target of your criticism, make it a target of systematic criticism. So so this counter that people say, well, how can I engage with somebody who rants? The point is, you can't have a dialogue with somebody who rants, but the larger notion of engagement still allows free speech. You know, let, let the view be aired so that you can then engage with the ideas not the person. And right. the point you brought up just a minute ago is that there's power involved. You're saying when someone has a certain kind of amount of power, that has to be taken into consideration. So I think the students are also saying the institution has to finally calibrate who they invite and who they give a certain kind of power or prestige for and yet allow for another form of engagement. If you just bring somebody in for one hour, let them rant, and then they leave campus, that may not be the form of engagement because then students are left to their own devices and say, we now have to meet in our own groups and talk. Versus this, there can be a structured form of allowing for engagement that everybody has access to the forum of debate. Well, the, the point is that, that they can have access to it not at the moment of the ranting, but later on, if the ideas in, are, are in circulation, th they can engage with it. I'm against disinviting speakers who I'm sort of in that sense fairly fundamentalist about free speech. But I think you have to give better arguments than the marketplace of ideas argument. Interesting, which is mostly the argument used that anybody should come, which is also not the reality of any university in this country. Yeah. Not everybody's invited. People are not invited for other reasons all the time, not yeah. because they're offensive, just because they're not qualified or they sure. don't have anything relevant to say. Yeah. I mean, I sometimes think it, it's foolish to invite somebody who's a right-wing, hostile, maniacal person. I mean, it's foolish because it just disturbs the peace and so on. But very often, somebody nevertheless wants it. I don't think it should be stopped. And certainly, I find these disinvitations just really very bad. I mean, I think they're very bad for to invite somebody and disinvite them, because all it does is give publicity to the hostile views and give them a moral high ground. You know, I don't think bad people should be given a moral high ground by being given the publicity of this kind. It's probably best to, to engage with them after the rant 
by letting the ideas emerge and then making a systematic critique of them. And after all, that is what happened in the, in the criminal transitional cases, such as in South Africa. Which are cases of engagement and not engagement. just of giving somebody yeah. a platform and adversarial kind of approach where one person speaks and then you're supposed to judge something. Right. Well, well, exactly. Where the person is just sitting there and you just see them as an object of detached investigation. And, and I think that's not what universities are like. Engagement is essential to, to the humanities. Okay. Well, thank you so much We're on this note of engagement. I really appreciate Akhil for joining sure. today in the podcast. And thanks and have a great summer. Thanks. Thanks a lot. <laughs>